We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Luke 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a, put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ruth. You can take your seats. Let me welcome you to Resurrection Oakland. My name is Brent, and I am one of the the pastors here. And if I have not met you yet, I would love to get to greet you and learn your name Uh, after the service. In case you were not here last Sunday, we actually started a very new, a brand new sermon series on the life of Peter. And uh, if you are new to Christianity or you are unfamiliar with the Bible, let me tell you who Peter is. Peter was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. And what's really interesting about Peter is that uh, we, 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 we find more about Peter's life in the Gospels than any of the other disciples. Uh, Peter's name shows up almost 200 times in the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The other 11 disciples, if you add up the combined number of times that their names show up in the Gospels is 50 times. One person, Peter, 200 times. The other 11, only 50. Here's what this means. It means that we get a window into Peter's life more than any of the other disciples' lives. More than any of the other disciples, Peter paints a picture for us of the Christian life, what it looks like, what it feels like, and what it is like to be a follower of Jesus. And that's why we're calling this series A Portrait of the Christian Life. And here's what I want us to see over the course of the next nine weeks as we're in this series, is that this picture that Peter paints for us of the Christian life, it is such a realistic picture. Peter is a walking contradiction. Sometimes he trusts Jesus and other times he doubts Jesus. We'll be looking at that next week. Sometimes he's full of faith and other times he is full of worry 
and fear and anxiety, just like you and me. Sometimes he gets it right, and wow, a lot of times he gets it wrong. Peter is a picture of all of us. It's such a realistic picture of the Christian life, but it's a hopeful picture of the Christian life. Peter is not perfect, far from it. But in the end, Peter is transformed. And friends, that is so hopeful because what it says is if God can work in Peter's life, he can work in your life and he can work in my life. Um, The series, it's actually not so much about Peter as it is about what Jesus does with people like Peter and what Jesus does with people like you and me. So last week, uh, we looked at Peter's very first encounter with Jesus, which was in John chapter 1. He meets Jesus for the very first time. Peter becomes a Christian. And what happens when Peter becomes a Christian? Jesus gives him a new name. This is true for every person who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus gives you a new name. What does that mean? It means that he gives you a new identity. It means that once you come to know him, you are no longer defined by what your success says about you or what your failure says about you. You're no longer defined what your, what your past says about you. You're no longer defined by what other people say about you. You're not even defined by what you say about you. You are defined by what God says about you. Well, what does God say about you? He says you are his, that you belong to him. He says you are co-heirs with Christ, son, daughter, But what happens after that? What happens after you become a Christian? What next? Uh, If you piece all of the gospel accounts together, what you find is that the passage we just read in Luke chapter 5 is kind of, it's basically the next major encounter that Peter has with Jesus. And here's what we're going to learn today. Uh, We're going to learn that over the course of the Christian life, There are two sentences that every Christian has to learn to say to God over and over again. And over the course of the Christian life, there are two sentences that God says to every Christian over and over and over again. Four sentences. That's where we're going today. And what I would say to you is, I think these four sentences could actually change your life. What if you could walk out of this room today with four sentences that could change your life? That's that's my hope. So let's dive in. What's the first sentence? Well, let me just set the scene for you. Uh, Our passage picks up where Jesus is preaching on the shores of the Lake Genesaret. It's also known as the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is preaching on these shores. This is COVID worship, okay? They're outdoors. Everybody's masked, you know, staying far, far away. And it gets so crowded that Jesus has to get in a boat, and he he gets in Peter's boat. Now, Luke in this passage, he goes back and forth between calling him Simon and Simon Peter. We're going to just call him Peter today. And he gets in Peter's boat, and after he finishes preaching, he says, Peter, I want you to set this boat out into the deep water, and we're going to drop the nets. And then look what Peter says in verse 5. He says, Simon, he says, Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night, and we have not caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And there it is. That's the first sentence. Every Christian has to learn to say to God, God, because you say so. I mean, imagine in this moment what Peter is thinking. Peter's thinking, Jesus, when he says we've been fishing all night, 
what he's saying is, Jesus, leave it to the professionals, okay? We, we do this for a living. This is how we make our living. We are professional fishermen, and you play with wood, okay? You're a carpenter. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, this isn't going to work. Uh, what you're saying, we, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. Everybody knows that nighttime is the best time to fish. And so what you're saying, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's foolish. It's unnecessary. It's not going to work. But because you say so, I'll do it. Peter comes to Jesus not as a consultant. He comes to Jesus as a king. And the only reason they let down these nuts, the only reason Peter lets down these nuts, is not because he understands it, not because he agrees with it, not because he wanted to, but because Jesus said so. So let's apply this to our life. When you come into contact with God's commands that seem foolish and unnecessary to you, that don't make sense to you, that seem culturally outdated to you, that might even go against your own desires in moments. When that happens, who wins? Is it you or is it God? Do, do you, let me ask you this way. Do you obey only when you agree or do you obey even when you disagree? Culture says the mantra of your life and my life should be because I say so. Live how you want to live. And Christianity comes into direct conflict with that because it says none of the mantra of your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, is not because I say so, but because God says so. I live how he calls me to live, not how I necessarily want to live. And one of the clearest signs that Jesus is not your consultant, but he's your king, is that more and more you are able to say, God, because you say so. I, I don't want to forgive, God, I don't want to forgive this person. They hurt me. But because you say so. God, I don't, I don't want to be that generous with my money. Because you say so. God, I don't want to fight for my marriage. This is too hard. It'd be easier to just walk away, but because you say so. God, I don't want to end this romantic relationship. I don't want to stop sleeping with this person. I don't, I don't want to love this difficult person, but because you say so. And some of you are thinking, wow, that sounds like a really oppressive way to live. Um, do you see what happens in this passage in verse 6 when they let out their nets? they have this overflowing catch of fish. And every, every commentator that I read this week said it was a catch unlike that any they'd ever seen. You see, here's the principle. The principle is this, is that obedience always leads to blessing because God's commands are always for our benefit. Have you ever noticed how little children always need a reason to obey? If you're, if you're a parent, you know this, you have little kids, and you say, you know, no, you cannot stay up late tonight. 
No, you know, you have to finish your vegetables. No, you cannot have another bowl of ice cream tonight. No, no more screen time. And what do little kids do? They always need a reason. What do they do when, they, when you tell them, no, 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 they, they say, why? Why? And then you try to give them a reason, and you give them lots of reasons, and they don't buy in. And finally you say, because I said so. That's the reason. How about that? Because I said so. Now, what is a parent saying when they say that? What they're saying is, I am wiser than you. I, I know things you don't. I, I know what will lead to your blessing. And I know what will lead to your harm. And you say, God is the same way. No, here's the only difference. God is a perfect parent. He is a perfect father. He made you. He created you. He knows how the world is supposed to work. God is not holding out on you. This is how we live most of our lives. We, we live thinking God is holding out on us. We're suspicious that his commands will actually lead to our blessing. It's a character assassination. But there's no one who is more for you in this world, friends, than God himself. You see, where in your life right now, let me just ask you, where are you resisting God? Where are you treating him as a consultant and not a king? Where are you living according to because I say so versus according to because God says so? That's the first sentence a Christian has to learn to say over and over again. Uh, that brings us to the second one. And uh, I want you to see this in the text. When Peter sees this great catch of fish, the first thing he says is, he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That's the second sentence. I am a sinful person. If you're a Christian, this is a sentence that ought to be coming out of your mouth over and over and over again. In fact, the more you grow as a Christian, the more you say it. You know why? The more you say it, because the more you see it. When you first become a Christian, uh, you see just the tip of the iceberg of how flawed you are. You, you know, you, 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 you see only a fraction of it. You see just a fraction of how self-centered you are, how self-righteous you are, how slow to forgive you are. I mean, you... You, you really have no clue when you first become a Christian. You just see a small, you just see the tip of the iceberg. But the more you grow as a Christian, the more you see what's underneath the surface, actually. The more you see the depths of your own sin and brokenness. And my favorite example of this in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who wrote you know, many books in the New Testament, uh, he wrote the book 1 Corinthians, which is one of the very first books Paul wrote, kind of early in his Christian life. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls himself the least of all the apostles. Uh, but then you read a book like Ephesians, and in Ephesians, Ephesians Paul wrote in the middle of his uh, ministry, so a little bit after 1 Corinthians 15. In Ephesians 3, Paul calls himself the least of all the saints. He goes from the least of the apostles to now he's the least of the saints. And then in 1 Timothy 1, which is one of the very last books Paul wrote, he calls himself the chief of all sinners. He goes from the least of the saints, to, I mean the least of the apostles to the least of the saints, to the chief of all sinners. And you say, man, Paul was really regressing in the Christian life. 
He was headed in the wrong direction. No, Paul was progressing in the Christian life. Because the more you grow as a Christian, the, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize how unlike Jesus you are. The more you're able to say this, God, I'm a sinful person. And a lot of people, maybe some of you in this room today, have real issue with this. Um, people would say, you know, pe- people are not inherently sinful. People are inherently good. Or some would even say, you know what, this, this kind of language is actually psychologically and emotionally destructive for people. To have that kind of perception of yourself is not good. But would you just think about this for just a moment? You cannot make sense of why the world is the way that it is and why you and I are the way that we are without this idea of, without this, without this idea that we are sinful people. Um, J.K. Rowling, in the very first Harry Potter book, at the very end of it, she has one of the puppets of the Dark Lord Voldemort said his name. See, said it. He said, had one of the puppets of the Dark Lord Voldemort say this, Lord Voldemort showed me there is no good and there is no evil. There is only power. And I think what J.K. Rowling is getting at is that there may be few things more evil in this world than denying that sin and evil exist. Some of you might remember uh, there was a movie that came out in the 90s called Silence of the Lambs. And um, I was listening to like Boys to Men in that season of my life. It was a great season. It's a great season. Um, uh, in this movie, uh, the movie is it's actually kind of roughly based on the true story of uh, six serial killers. And uh, in the movie, Hannibal Lecter is this, uh, I mean, terribly evil serial killer. He, he, he kills his victims and then he eats them. And the main detective, her name's Clarice, she is trying, she's studying him. And she's trying to kind of get inside of his psychology and understand why, why is he doing this? What's driving him? And this is what she says in the movie. She says, uh, what happened to you? And he says to her, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. I can't be reduced to a set of influences. You have given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. Nothing is now anybody's fault. Look at me. Can't you stand to say that I am evil? And see, everybody looks at the world and says, you know, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the world. But we've actually lost the vocabulary to know how to talk about it. We've lost words for it. We've reduced everything to mere behaviorism. And Christianity gives us a word to make sense of it all. You know what the word is? It's the word sin. Kathleen Norris, in her book, Dakota, says this, the notion of sin is one of the most unexpected gifts that I've found in the monastic tradition. The fourth century monks began to answer a question for me that the human potential movement of the late 20th century never seemed to address. If I'm okay, and you're okay, and our friends are okay, why is the world definitely not okay? Blaming others wouldn't do. Only when I began to see the world's ills mirrored in myself did I begin to find an answer. Only as I began to address that uncomfortable word sin did I see that I was not being handed a load of needless guilt so much as a useful tool for confronting the negative side 
of human behavior. Here's what sin does. It explains why the world isn't okay, and it explains why you and I are not okay, and it also explains why Peter has this crazy reaction to Jesus in this passage. Did you see this? He says, go away from me. Depart from me. What's going on there? Um, Think about this for just a moment. What happens when you find yourself in the presence of someone who makes you realize you're not as you're not as good or you're not as okay as you thought. We got a lot of Cal students in this church. You know, when you were in high school, you were the smartest. You were always the smartest. You were always at the top of the class. And what happened when you got to Berkeley? Overnight, you became average. Hmm? You realize there's a lot of other smart people in this world. Now, now I'm looking directly at some of you. <laughs> what, was that, what was that like for you? Was that fun? No. It was terrifying. In fact, some of you, it's why you've thought about transferring. So you had Peter's reaction. Go away from me. I need to go somewhere else. Let me, let me go to another school. Think about it this way. What if, um, we'll take it out of academics, what if you pride yourself on beauty or career? That's what makes you feel important in life. That's what makes you feel like a somebody. That's what makes you feel significant. What happens when you get around somebody who's more beautiful than you are or more successful than you are? I'll tell you what happens. It is unsettling. It's unsettling. You know, this is why, by the way, All of the research shows that social media is kind of just making all of us feel worse about our lives. You scroll through these images, scroll through these uh, pictures, videos, you look at other people who, they look like they have lives so much better than you do, right? That's what we think. Wow, they they take better vacations than I've ever taken. they're, They're more fit than I am. They, uh, they're, they, they're, they're better cooks than I am. You know, look at this person. How do they do this? They have better marriages than I do. They, 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 they take, uh, they're better parents. I mean, we compare ourselves in all sorts of these ways. And what happens when we do that? We become miserable. We feel worse about our lives. That's what happens when you get close to someone who exceeds you. Now think about God. God is infinitely beautiful. He's not just sort of beautiful. He is the source and the fountain of all beauty. Wouldn't getting close to God make you feel unbeautiful? That's what it does with other people. God is infinitely glorious. Wouldn't getting close to God make you feel unglorious? He's infinitely significant. Wouldn't getting close to him make you feel like, make you feel small? God is infinitely holy. Would it getting close to him make you feel flawed and sinful? You see, no wonder that every time someone gets close to God in the Old Testament, they freak out. They are undone. They're afraid. In Genesis 3, when God shows up in the garden, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide from him. Go away from me. In Genesis 18, when Abraham encounters God, he says, God, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. 
in Psalm 8, the psalmist says, God, when I consider the, the, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars that you set in place, who am I that you are mindful of me? When Isaiah encounters the glory of God in the temple in Isaiah 6, he cries out, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. They all have the same reaction as Peter, which is, I'm a sinful person. And see, one of the ways that you know you're getting close to God is you get a clearer picture of your sin. You're, 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 as you grow as a Christian, your sin doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger. You don't repent less, you repent more. You find yourself saying, gosh, you know, way back when I saw just the tip of the iceberg and now I'm, real, I'm worse than I ever thought. I'm a sinful person. Have you said that to God? Do you, do you have that kind of honesty with God? Do you have that kind of honesty with yourself? And I'll let you on a little secret here. You'll, you will never, that kind of honesty will always terrify you. You'll never be able to say that sentence to God unless you hear the first sentence he says to you. So what is that? Well, we see it right here in verse 10. Peter says to Jesus, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And the first thing Jesus says to Peter is, do not be afraid. God wants to say this to you every single day for the rest of your life. You see, the real, you know what the real miracle of this passage is? The real miracle of this passage is not this great catch of fish. The real miracle of the passage is that Peter gets close to Jesus. He gets close to God incarnate. He gets close to the one who is infinitely holy and infinitely glorious. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. That's the real miracle because every time, every time up to this point, people get close to God, they are afraid. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. And friends, this is a sentence that you've, you've got to get deep into your bones is to hear God saying to you over and over and over again, do not be afraid. Why do we need to hear that? We need to hear it for the same reason Peter needed to hear it. You know, at the very moment that Peter feels worse about himself than he has ever felt, at the very moment that he sees his sin to a degree that he's ever seen it, at the very moment that he feels unlovable, Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. What is Jesus doing? He's assuring Peter. He's welcoming Peter. He's loving, he's loving Peter. That's what he's doing. One of my favorite scenes in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, uh, it's the story of Edmund. And if you don't know it, Edmund is one of these four siblings and uh, over the course of the story, Edmund becomes a, a pretty terrible person. Um, he betrays all of his family, and he follows the lies of the wicked white witch who promises him Turkish delight, and she promises to make him a prince. And over the course of this betrayal, Edmund really messes things up. I mean, he does a lot of terrible things. He hurts a lot of people, his own family included. But then he's rescued by Aslan, who's the Christ figure. And once he's rescued, it really begins to sink into Edmund 
what a, all the terrible things that he had done, and he's just filled with shame and guilt. And there's a scene in the book where his three siblings are watching. It's right after he's been rescued, and Aslan pulls Edmund aside. And, and there's just enough distance where they, they can watch Aslan talking to Edmund, but they, they can't hear what Aslan is saying. And what's really cool about the book is C.S. Lewis doesn't tell us what Aslan says. He, he just says this. He says, Aslan told him something that Edmund never forgot. And so it's kind of a cliffhanger. You're kind of left wondering, what did, what did Aslan say to Edmund in all of his shame and in all of his guilt and all of his betrayal? You know, did he just bring the hammer down on him or did he say something else? And the very next scene is the, the, the white witch shows up. And Edmund is standing there watching as Aslan and the, the witch are about to have this face off. And Edmund hears the witch say to Aslan, she says, you have a traitor there, Aslan. And this is what Lewis writes. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he had been through and after the talk that he had had with Aslan that morning, he just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the white witch said. You know what Edmund heard from Aslan? He heard the same thing that Peter heard from Jesus. What Jesus is saying to Peter and to us is he is saying, I know how sinful you are. I mean, you see the tip of the iceberg. I see the whole thing. I see the depths of your self-centeredness. I see the depths of your self-righteousness. But don't be afraid. This is is Jesus saying, you are far worse than you think, but don't be afraid because you are far more loved than you could imagine. And what a picture of the Christian life. What a picture of the Christian life that like Edmund And like Peter, here's what the Christian life is. It is you keep looking at your Savior, just like Edmund, just like Peter. You keep hearing his voice over your life. Do not be afraid. It is not a voice of condemnation. It's a voice of love and grace. It's not a voice of accusation. It's a voice of affirmation. And I love the way that J.I. Packer says this in his book, Knowing God. He says, there is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that God sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see, and that he sees even more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend, and he desires to be my friend. And he has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. It is, it is, it's only as you say to God, I am more sinful than I know, that God can say to you, don't be afraid because you are more loved than you know. And some people, 
get the first sentence but not the second. They say, I know I'm sinful, but I don't think God could ever love me. Some people get the second but not the first. They say, I I think God loves me, but I don't think I'm all that bad. A Christian says both. A Christian says, I know I'm a mess, and yet God loves me. So I just want to ask you this morning, where do you need to hear God saying to you this morning, do not be afraid? Where do you need to hear God saying to you, my grace is sufficient for you. My love for you has not wavered an ounce. And it never, ever, ever will. Where do you need to hear God saying that to you this morning? That's the first sentence. God wants to say to you this morning, he wants to say to you every day for the rest of your life. What's the second one? Here it is. God doesn't just say to Peter, don't be afraid. He says, from now on, you will fish for people. And I love this. Peter says, Jesus, I'm such a mess. And Jesus says, I know, and I've got a job for you to do. And I think what Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying, I want to use you for my purposes in the world. That's the second sentence that God wants to say to every Christian every day. I want to use you for my purposes in the world. We are all looking for purpose in life. We're born into this world looking for purpose in life. Mark Zuckerberg once said, purpose is when you feel like you are part of something bigger than yourself. And I like that definition. And I want you to know that there is no purpose bigger in life than the one that Jesus Christ offers to you. Jesus calls us out of our small purposes into his one big giant purpose, which is the kingdom of God that is at work in this world, pushing back evil and darkness and injustice and division and hatred and racism and poverty so that one day all things will be made new. You want want purpose in life? How about this purpose? The restoration of the whole world. That's what God is doing. That's what God is up to. And that's what God invites you into. And when you begin to see God's purposes for your life, you will do the same thing that Peter and the other disciples do at the very end of this passage. Verse 11 says, they pulled their boats up on shore and they left everything and followed him. Think about, think about what was in that boat that they walked away from. It was all those fish. I mean, every commentator I read this week said this had to have been the greatest catch they'd ever seen. Imagine the prophets that were in that boat and they walked away. Why did they walk away? I'll tell you why they walked away. They found something that was worth way more than what was in that boat. You know who really got caught that day? It was not these fish. It's Peter. It's Peter and the other disciples. Because they found someone who could give them a purpose that no amount of money or success, that no person, no job, no relationship, nothing in all of this world 
could give to them. They found someone who saw them at their worst and loved them, which is something we are all craving. And they found someone who is worth building their entire lives around. And so they did. And once you've met him, you will too. You'll follow him like that. And it won't be perfect. But it will be radical. Let's wrap this up as we come to the table today. As we come to this table today, we are saying something to God. And here's what we're saying. We are saying, God, because you say so. You, you, you cannot come to this table and treat God like a consultant in your life. To come to this table is to come to God as a king And it's to say, God, I know, I know there are parts of my life where I am resisting you and it is working against me. And I need your help to trust you and to follow you and to change and to live according to because you say so. That's what we're saying to God when we come to this table. And we're we're also saying, God, I am a sinful person. This table is not for good people. It's, it's not for moral people. It's not for religious people. It's not for spiritual people. This table is for broken, messy people. It is for people who come saying, all I bring is my sin. That's all I bring to this table. That's what we say to God. What is God saying to us when we come to this table? He's saying, don't be afraid. I know your sin is great. My, my love is greater. I know your sin is deep, my love is deeper. I know your sin is wide, my love is wider. You know, on the night before he died, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, may this cup be taken from me. He was talking about the cross. He said, may this cup be taken from me. But then he prayed this, yet not as I will, but your will be done. In other words, you know what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his death? Father, because you say so. And where did it take him? When we say that, here's the one difference. For Jesus, it took him to cursing, actually. For us, it takes us to blessing. See, for Jesus, it took him to the cross, actually. And what 2 Corinthians 5 says is that when Jesus went to the cross, he became sin for us. Our sin was placed onto him. We come to this table, we're saying, God, I'm a sinful person. But on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon him. And when he cried out to God in his sin, he got silence and rejection. So that now when Peter and us cry out to him in our sin, what do we get? Do not be afraid, says God. That's what God is saying to us in this table. And he's also saying, I want to use you for my purposes in the world. This table is where God invites us so that we can feast and be filled up. There's something mysterious that happens, friends, at this table as we eat this bread and drink this cup in a way that I can't explain it to you. God is present in a way that is utterly unique. And he wants to meet us and fill us and feed us so he can send us out into this city to live for a story that is bigger than our own.
and to be a part of his purposes in the world. And if you've never said yes to that, today would be a great day. You can say yes to that today if you've never said yes to that. That is the invitation of this table. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, would you help us this morning as we come to this table Would you help us to hear your voice? There's a lot of other voices in this world that drown that voice out. Voices from inside of us, voices from outside of us. So would you help us to hear your voice? Would you help us to hear what it is that you have to say to us today that we need not be afraid? That we are loved, that we are safe, that we are welcomed, Give us ears to hear, God, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.